Well, brothers and sisters, the subject of divorce is not an abstract one in our day, and it is not irrelevant to any of us. Um, according to 2021 statistics, half of all marriages in the United States still end in divorce. We are ranked sixth in the world in terms of divorce rate. Second marriages fare even worse. 70% of second marriages are said to fail, or rather 60%. And for third marriages, 73% of them fail. When you ask about what about Christian marriages, I don't think we can have a statistic because people are so confused as to what a Christian is. But I think it is very safe to say that among professing Christians, followers of Christ, divorce is far more prevalent than it ought to be. And so because of the prevalence of divorce in our society, because of the increased ease with which we're able to obtain a divorce for decades now in our society, and because of the painful effects of divorce upon lives and families, we should be eager to know what does God say about this matter of divorce. If the Bible is a self-revelation of God by which the man of God is made adequate for every good work, surely the Bible speaks to this matter. And we should want to know what is the mind of God concerning this matter of divorce. And as we come back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, what we consider further this morning will help to answer those questions about divorce. Does God sanction divorce at all? If so, for what reasons and under what circumstances? Mark 10 helps us to understand these things. Now, we covered verses 1 to 9 last week. We'll continue with 10 to 12, but I'm going to read the whole section um, for our review. So Mark 10, getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. I want us to see three things from this passage. We're going to look at the background of this new covenant teaching about divorce that our Lord gives. What's the backdrop? Then the content of this new covenant teaching about divorce. What does Jesus teach about divorce? And then we're going to look at the implications of our Lord's teaching about divorce. First of all, the background to this new covenant teaching about divorce. Our Lord's teaching does not come to us in a vacuum. When Jesus Christ breaks into human history and comes on the scene to bring the final installment of divine revelation, God has already been dealing with the nation of Israel for 1,400 years. 
And not only has God given laws that pertain to the governance of the nation of Israel, but in the Old Testament, we have God's plan and design for mankind in the beginning, for the entire human race. All of that provides a backdrop to the teaching Jesus gives us about divorce. In other words, Jesus is not the first person to address the question of divorce. God's word to Adam addresses it, and God's words through Moses deal with this matter of divorce. So, even though our Lord's teaching is authoritative and final, it has a context. What was the context? First of all, the context is the Mosaic permission of divorce. Now, this takes us back to what we covered last time. The Pharisees come to Jesus with a testy question about divorce. Verse 2, Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Jesus answers in verse 3, what did Moses command you? And they respond in verse 4, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. When Jesus says, what did Moses command you? Their minds went back to Deuteronomy 24, where they believed they had a loophole to secure a divorce. And we need to go back to Deuteronomy 24. It does relate to what we're teaching today. And I want to review those first four verses to which the Pharisees referred. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, King James has uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her away out of, from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance." Now, the great debate in rabbinic circles in the time of Jesus had to do with this word indecency, or King James, uncleanness. What was the uncleanness or the indecency which allowed a man to send away his wife with a, a writ of divorce? And there were two major schools. There was the school of Shammai, and that was a stricter school. Shammai school said that it had to be something serious, something scandalous for a man to send away his wife. The other school was the school of the rabbi Hillel, and they were much more loose and much more lax, literally believing that if a wife simply burned her husband's food, or if she spoke too loudly so that the neighbors heard, that was grounds enough to send her away. So you had the strict school of Shammai and the very loose, lax school of Hillel. The Pharisees, by asking this question, we're thinking, ah, we're going, Jesus is going to impale himself on one or the other horn of this dilemma. If he sides with um, Hillel, then the Shamites will criticize him. If he sides with the Shammai school, then the followers of Hillel will accuse him. They saw it as a no-win situation for Jesus. But as we saw last week, or last time, in his consummate wisdom, Jesus does not fall for that trap. And he confounds them, as he always does, with divine wisdom. 
But for our purposes this morning, I want to focus a little more on this word indecency or uncleanness, the grounds of which Moses permitted divorce under the old covenant. It appears that the word indecent uncleanness is left deliberately vague. In fact, it seems to cover anything that the husband might find displeasing in his wife short of sexual sin. Why did it not pertain to sexual sin? I think we can say for this reason, that the penalty or the remedy for sexual sin, sexual uncleanness, such as adultery, in the law of God was something other than divorce. I won't turn to it, but in Leviticus 20, verse 10, Deuteronomy 22, 22, the law prescribed death for adultery. If a man or woman committed adultery, they were to be stoned to death. In the case of a woman who was suspected of adultery, there was a a certain ritual in Numbers chapter 5. She had to go to the priest, and she had to drink what was called the water of bitterness. Uh, Water would be spilled in the dust of the ground, and she would be forced to drink some of that. And if her uh, stomach swelled and her thigh wasted away, then she was found to be guilty and was a curse, and presumably she would be stoned. In Deuteronomy 22, if a man charges his new bride of not being a virgin, if the charge proves to be false, the man is fined, but he may not divorce her. If it is found that she was indeed not a virgin, then she was to be stoned to death. But in no instance was divorce prescribed as the solution to adultery. The conclusion that the indecency spoken of in Deuteronomy 24 did not include adultery or sexual uncleanness. It had to do with lesser matters. Further, we saw that the permission of divorce there in Deuteronomy 24 was never intended to encourage divorce, but to discourage it. The best reading of that text has the if clause in the first three statements, that if a man finds some uncleanness in his wife, and if he gives her a certificate of divorce, and if he sends her away, and she marries another man, and he divorces her, or he dies, that first husband may not take her back again. See, the intent of that permission was to discourage divorce. It was, look, buddy, you better think twice before you divorce your wife because you're not going to get her back again. So it was not given to encourage divorce, but to be an obstacle to divorce. The final point about this mosaic permission is the reason given. Jesus says here in verse 5 of Mark 10, because of your hardness of heart, this commandment was given. And the the word hardness of heart is a word you would recognize. It's sclerocardia, and you know sclero is hardening. Um, Arteriosclerosis, a hardening of the arteries, and cardion, from which we get cardiac heart. It's a hardening of the heart. It wasn't their blood pump that was was, uh, awry. It was their, their, their heart, their spiritual inner being. It was because of your hardness of heart that, that the Lord permitted you to divorce your wife. It was because of man's rebellion, man's insubordination to the law of God, that God through Moses permitted it. He never sanctioned it. He never condoned it. He never saw it as good. It was simply to ameliorate or to alleviate worse evils that would come from divorce, especially to protect the woman's reputation. 
So in the background, behind our Lord's new covenant teaching about divorce, we have this mosaic permission given in Deuteronomy 24. But then as further background to what Jesus says about divorce, we have God's original intention regarding divorce. And remember how Jesus steers the conversation. What did Moses command? They go to Deuteronomy 24. That's not what Jesus was thinking when he was thinking about Moses' commands. He takes them all the way back to Genesis. And he says, in the beginning, God made them male and female. And he takes them back to Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. What Jesus is saying to these Pharisees who wanted an easy out to divorce their wives, he's saying, first of all, divorce is contrary to the divine intention. God made them male and female, and male and female are complementary. They are to go together and not be pulled apart. Divorce is contrary in the beginning from the divine intention to make male and female. Further, divorce is contrary to the divine institution of marriage. For this cause, a man shall leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's all about leaving, cleaving, and weaving the two into one. That says nothing about divorce. That says everything about uniting and fusing together two lives. So divorce is contrary to the divine intention of male and female, contrary to the divine institution of marriage, and divorce we saw as contrary to the divine sanction. It was God who invented marriage. God made the woman for the man. God brought the woman to the man. God officiated, as it were, at the first wedding. God is the author of marriage. God puts his sanction on marriage and divorce is contrary to that sanction, as Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So the whole point is that in the beginning, divorce was not in the picture. God intended marriage to be a permanent, indissoluble relationship of the highest human intimacy. So that's the background to what Jesus teachings teaches about divorce. There was this um, well, you have first God's original plan. In that original plan, divorce was not in view. And with regard to the Mosaic permission, it was only given for their hardness of heart. And it appeared to be something less than adultery because adultery warranted stoning. Well, now let's look at what does Jesus teach about divorce? What I'm calling the content of our Lord's new covenant teaching about divorce. The first thing we want to see is that the Mosaic permission has been abrogated under the new covenant. To abrogate means to authoritatively repeal or abolish. Jesus abolishes the Mosaic permission. Verses 11 and 12. So, the Pharisees are talking about, yeah, Moses um, gave us this commandment that, you know, we could write her a certificate of divorce and, and divorce her. Jesus comes on and says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. The context here is Deuteronomy 24 and the Mosaic permission. Yes, for something less than adultery, you were permitted to send away your wife. But now here is Jesus, and he is 
weighing in as the new covenant lawgiver, and he is saying that that permission given under Moses no longer holds true. Rather, whoever divorces his wife, presumably on the grounds that Moses once permitted, and marries another woman, he commits adultery against her. His second marriage is adulterous. It's sinful. It's disallowed by God because his first marriage was not legitimately dissolved because the grounds of divorce are not recognized. So under the new covenant, there is no more toleration for divorce for the reasons less than adultery. Jesus under the new covenant is tightening up the standard for divorce. Listen to John Murray. John Murray, the great systematic theologian from Westminster Seminary, died in 1975. He writes a little bit in a hard-to-understand way, but I think you'll get the point. Murray says, in the Mosaic economy, indeed, divorce for the reason mentioned in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 was suffered or tolerated. It was afforded sufferance as an evil, and because tolerated in practice was not penalized by civil ostracism or ecclesiastical excommunication in the Mosaic jurisprudence. In other words, Moses allowed a divorce for less than adultery because of their hardness of heart. But the law that Jesus enunciates or institutes is one that obliterates this kind of sufferance or tolerance. In his kingdom, the jurisprudence respecting divorce is to be more stringent. The economy he inaugurates is not to be characterized by the laxity inherent in the sufferance afforded in the Mosaic economy. I hope you got that. Let me illustrate it. Here's a Jewish man in the time of Moses, right? And he marries a wife. And from the beginning, life with this woman is a struggle. She's disagreeable. She's contentious. She's spiteful. She stubbornly resists his authority. She asserts herself against him, and she's generally a grief to live with. And under Moses, the man could have given her a certificate of divorce. He could have signed it, given it to her, and sent her away, and he would have not been excommunicated. He would have suffered no ecclesiastical penalty because he was permitted to do that. Not that God approved of it. No, it was a concession to their hardness of heart. But now take the same man under the new covenant where we are living now, okay? These are Jesus. This is Jesus teaching. Same man under the new covenant in 2021. He marries a wife, and he's annoyed by her disagreeable personality. They get into frequent arguments, and he says, look, I'm tired of living like this. We're just incompatible. I want a divorce, and he gets a divorce thinking that he's free from his wife, and he goes off and marries another woman. According to Jesus, he is committing adultery against his wife. He has entered into an immoral, illicit relationship because he had no right to divorce his wife in the first place on those grounds. The grounds that were once tolerated under Moses are no longer tolerated under Christ. And the same truth is conveyed in verse 12 of Mark 10. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Here he turns the tables and says it's the same thing with a wife. And by the way, this is the only time in either the Old or New Testament that the wife is presumed to have the authority to initiate a divorce. That was not true under the Old Testament. It was not true of Jewish law. But our Lord asserts 
that a woman is on equal footing with the man to initiate divorce. Not that the divorce is approved here. Like with the man, it is not. If she herself takes initiative, divorces her husband, presumably on the same grounds of Deuteronomy 24, that was once tolerated, and she marries another man, she is committing adultery. What was once approved is no longer approved. So here's a woman who marries a man, and she finds that he is not the knight in shining armor that she thought he was during their courtship. And they get into marriage, and she finds him to be rude and insensitive and harsh and selfish. And she thinks, I want out of this marriage. There are better choices out there. I'm going to trade this, this guy in for a better model. And so she divorces him on the grounds of incompatibility. And she marries another. According to Jesus, she's committing adultery because she had no right to divorce on those grounds. What was once permitted under Moses is no longer permitted under Christ. So the first aspect of our Lord's new covenant teaching about divorce is that it abrogates or abolishes the Mosaic permission. Divorce is no longer allowed for those reasons less than sexual uncleanness or adultery. Now, what observations should we make at this point about our Lord's teaching about divorce? First of all, Jesus' teaching is not a contradiction of the moral law of God. Jesus is not doing anything contrary to the moral law of God that he himself is the author of. He is simply setting aside what was a Mosaic concession to hardness of heart. God never approved of or morally sanctioned divorce. And further, Jesus' teaching is a confirmation of the original unity and sanctity of marriage. By Jesus tightening things up, he's getting us a lot closer to the divine intention in the first place. Remember, in the beginning, God never intended divorce, right? It was all about a union that was to be permanent. And by Jesus tightening things up and saying, no, you may not divorce your wife or your husband for some superficial reason. Because if you do, you will be guilty of adultery because I will not sanction that divorce and therefore I will not sanction that second marriage. And so Jesus is tightening things up, limiting for sure divorce. And in that he's getting closer to God's original design to bring people together in permanence. And that's what our Lord is all about, right? He's come to restore the original righteous standard of God. He's come to make things new. In him, we have newness of life. In him, we become new men and new women. In him, we have, are given a new heart that wants to obey the standard of God. But now follow me here. In this life, even for the redeemed, are all things made perfectly new? Is paradise completely restored? Are we so changed by Jesus so as never to sin again? The answer is obvious to all of those questions. It is no. Once sin entered into the world, it made a mark that will not be completely erased until there is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness and only righteousness dwells. Sin has made an indelible mark on this world, and the stain of sin will not be expunged until Jesus and God take a blowtorch to this earth, and it is burned up, and he makes all things new. 
And so, while our Lord's new covenant teaching about divorce brings us much closer to the divine original intent of marriage, it does not presuppose a world that is without sin. Our Lord's teaching is about divorce is strict, saying divorce is not allowable for the fickle, whimsical reasons concocted by humans. Well, we're not compatible. Well, she's an annoyance. Well, he's too selfish. Well, I want someone prettier. I want someone more handsome. It's just not convenient. I want my freedom. Those are not grounds for divorce, according to Jesus. But the teaching of Jesus is not so strict as to ignore the reality of sin in the world. And so when we ask, is divorce allowable at all under the new covenant? We answer in a second point under the content of his teaching, divorce for sexual sin is allowed under the new covenant. Now, we're not going to get this from Mark. But if we restricted ourselves to Mark's gospel, we would not get a full and accurate picture of all that the Lord teaches about divorce. Now, that's not to say that anything he is saying here in Mark is misleading or wrong. He is giving the general principle. Remember, the context is the Mosaic permission of Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus is saying that doesn't apply anymore. You try to get divorced on the basis of those things Moses once permitted, and you will be committing adultery. He's tightening it up. That is the general principle. But to get the fullest teaching from Jesus on divorce in the New Covenant, we have to go to two passages in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. I'm going to read those, and I want you to notice what is different or what is added that is not contained in Mark. In Mark 5, 31 and 32, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's Deuteronomy 24, right? That's the Mosaic permission because of hardness of heart. But listen to the next verse. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The basic rule is the same, that if you divorce your wife on the basis of what was once permitted, you are in danger of committing adultery, with this exception, except for the reason of unchastity. The rule of no divorce has one exception, according to Jesus. Unchastity. Literally, it's the word porneia, from which we get pornography, and I'll speak about it in a moment. But the other passage is also in Matthew, Matthew 18, 19, 8, and 9. And it's the same scenario that Mark is recording of Jesus being tested by the Pharisees. But Matthew's version has this Matthew 19, 8, and 9. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, so here's Jesus, the new covenant lawgiver, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, what is meant by immorality or unchastity? It's the Greek word porneia, from which we get pornography. It is sexual uncleanness in a broad sense. 
It is used in 1 Corinthians 5.1, and it refers to incest. I hear that immorality is, is reported among you of such a kind that is not even found among Gentiles, for a man has his father's wife. Incest is called porneia. In Jude 7, homosexuality is spoken of as porneia. Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them indulged in gross immorality, gross porneia, and went after strange flesh. Their porneia is, is homosexuality. In 1 Corinthians 10, 8, it includes adultery. Paul says, don't act immorally as some of them did in the Old Testament. And 23,000 fell in one day. Now, you can't tell me that all 23,000 were single people. Most of them were married. And the immorality that characterized them must have been adultery. So porneia is a general word for sexual sin, whether it's incest, whether it's adultery, whether it's homosexuality. And our Lord permitted and is permitting divorce for sexual sin. Now, in doing so, is he introducing a new law? I mean, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to restore the true meaning of God's commands. Was Jesus bringing in a new law? The answer is um, no. No, he wasn't. First of all, God himself practiced divorce for sexual sin. I remember Jay Adams making the statement, God is a divorced person. There are those who would say divorce for, is, is not acceptable for any reason at all. They've got a problem with the fact that God is a divorced person. There are many passages of Scripture which refer to God being married to Israel. God was the husband to Israel. I'll just read one that's rather graphic in Ezekiel 16. Listen to this imagery in uh, Ezekiel 16, 8, about, about Yahweh's relationship to, to Israel. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. That's, that's marital imagery. God was married to Israel. But Israel, as you know, was idolatrous. And so what do we read in Jeremiah 3, 8? In Jeremiah 3, 8, we read these words. And I saw that for all your adulteries, all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. God divorced Israel for spiritual adultery. And so allowance for divorce for adultery has a precedent in God himself. He divorced Israel for spiritual adultery. And then somewhere along the line, the case law in Israel, which called for stoning for adultery, was acceptably put aside in favor of less severe penalty for adultery. So in the case of David, David committed adultery, but God accepted repentance and forgave him. In the case of Joseph in Matthew 1.19, he is said to be righteous. He suspected Mary was pregnant, and yet not by me. We're not married. And he, he was, he's considered righteous for wanting to divorce Mary for her suspected unfaithfulness. So by God's own example... And with precedent in the Old Testament economy, adultery was associated with divorce. God sanctioned divorce for adultery in the Old Testament. 
And that is the only reason Jesus gives under the new covenant for divorce being acceptable. Now, let's conclude with the implications of this new covenant teaching about divorce. First of all, the implications for marriage. We have seen that marriage is a divinely ordained institution. God created male and female, and God said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Only God has the right to legislate about marriage. Man did not invent it. It is not man's prerogatives to make the rules about marriage. And marriage is intended by God in the beginning to be permanent. Nothing in the original purpose of God included divorce. Only complementariness, only coming together, only union, only fusion, only joining of two individuals into one. Marriage in two places is called a covenant. Proverbs 2.17, she leaves uh, the companion of her youth by, by covenant in Malachi 2.14 refers to marriage as a covenant. And as new covenant believers, we need to seek to fulfill God's original intention for marriage. But what are the implications of Jesus' teaching for divorce? Now, follow me closely here. The implications of what Jesus teaches about divorce are as follows. Divorce is always the result of sin. It's got to be. Because in the original state, divorce was not contemplated, right? Sinless man joined to sinless woman, no divorce was contemplated. So when there is divorce, it is always because of someone's sin. However, and this is important, divorce is not always sinful. It is possible to have an innocent party. It is not saying that both parties are sinning. If one person commits adultery, is unfaithful, and breaks the marriage bond, the other one is then free to divorce. And although it, there's always sin involved in divorce, it doesn't mean that for one to divorce another is always sinful. Because Jesus permits divorce on the basis of porneia, sexual uncleanness. Divorce, then, is legitimate on the grounds of sexual sin. Now, that's the only grounds that Jesus gave. There is another grounds in 1 Corinthians 7, desertion by an unbelieving partner, but we're not going to consider that now. That's not within our purview. But I want to say one more thing here before we make some final applications. Divorce is never necessary among believers. I believe that the Gospels are teaching that Jesus forbids divorce except in the case of porneia. That is an exception that we must take into account in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. But among believers, even if there is that grievous sin of marital unfaithfulness, it doesn't necessitate divorce. Why? Because of the grace of God in the hearts of his people, enabling them to repent and to forgive. Now, it is one of the hardest things to forgive, marital unfaithfulness, but the grace of God is so powerful that it enables people to repent and to forgive. And I have not had vast experience, but even in my own experience, I can think of three instances where I was privileged to be involved in seeing a couple where there had been marital unfaithfulness reconciled. In one of those cases, one of the spouses has since died, in the other two cases, that marriage has con those marriages have continued on for decades after marital unfaithfulness. 
because of the grace of God enabling them to repent and to forgive. Luke 17, 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Though it is one of the hardest things to forgive, the grace of God is such that we can forgive. And the key to forgiveness is always Matthew 18. When we contemplate the immense debt, the incalculable debt that we have been forgiven, I've been spared hell to get heaven, that alone enables us to extend forgiveness even against such a grievous wrong as that. So even though pornea is a legitimate grounds for divorce, in the case of two Christians, it need not be so. There can be repentance. There can be forgiveness. There can be reconciliation and restoration of the marriage. And that is what we pray for. That is what we always work for. Well, let me make a few closing applications, and then we'll be done. As we think of, of this teaching, what can we take away? Well, first I would say this. In light of our Lord's strict teaching about divorce, consider how rebellious our generation is. We live in a society that thinks it has invented marriage as a convenience, as an expedient. And so we can make the rules for marriage. We can make the rules, the terms for who enters into marriage and the terms on which basis marriage gets broken because it's a human institution. Well, it is not a human institution. It is God who is the author of marriage. But in our day, we have so many ignoring marriage. I think there's an increasing, there may be less divorces numerically because there are less people getting married. There are people saying, oh, we don't need to get married. We just live together. And they're flouting God's command. And those who do get married can flit in and out of marriage for any whimsical reason, especially since the no-fault uh, divorce laws of the 1970s. You know, whatever makes me uncomfortable, I, I want out of this marriage, and, and we can do it. We have approved same-sex marriage, the insanity of that, the irrationality of that. God made male and female. Can't you see they're different? Can't you see they're complementary? Can't you see they're intended for each other? But we will pair two men with each other and two women with each other, contrary to natural affection, contrary to reason. But that's where our society is in our day. And our society will mock those of us who are committed to traditional marriage. And they will say, we are old-fashioned, and have you heard this? We're on the wrong side of history. Well, let me tell you, if history is his story, they will be found to be on the wrong side of history who flout God's moral law and God's design. We are not on the wrong side of history if we are on God's side. And so in light of our Lord's strict teaching about divorce and clear teaching about marriage, just consider again how rebellious our generation is. It is a basis for us crying out to God and saying, God, we deserve your wrath. In the midst of wrath, please remember mercy. But secondly, seek to glorify God in our generation by your faithfulness to the marriage bond and your diligence to fulfill the purposes of marriage. See, when it's really dark, the light shines brighter, doesn't it? And I would recall to your mind something I'm sure I've given to you, the quote by Martin Luther. It's a glorious quote. Listen to it. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. 
where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all battlefronts besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Where is the world attacking God and his law and his word? Where is the devil attacking? Surely in this area of marriage and gender. It's a major area of attack. Therefore, it's a wonderful occasion for God's people to bring glory to God. What a shining light is a marriage that endures year after year, decade after decade in this age of shallow commitment or no commitment. As I've told you, if, my, if God spares them coming this May 28th, my parents will have been married 72 years. And most of those years as non-believers. My mother only became a Christian 18 years ago. But by the common grace of God, almost 72 years of marriage. What a shining light amidst the darkness is a marriage that is deepening in its quality, in its intimacy, in its enjoyment, year after year, decade after decade. And in that regard, let me ask you the question I ask myself perpetually. And as husbands and wives, we need to ask these hard questions. What are you currently doing or not doing that is hindering the intimacy of your marriage? What are you as a husband or wife currently doing or not doing that is hindering the intimacy of your marriage? What should you stop doing, begin doing, or do differently that will enhance the intimacy, the warmth, the closeness of your marriage and contribute to its endurance? And for you, parents of younger children, I ask, are your children serving as a bond to your relationship and not a buffer? You wonder why people get divorced after 25 years. Well, they've been focused on the children, and the children have been a buffer, keeping them apart from each other. And all of a sudden, the nest is empty, the children are gone, and it's metal on metal. We don't have a relationship, or we don't have a good relationship, because all of our affection has been directed toward the children, not toward one another. The children need to become a bond in your relationship, not a buffer. They need to draw you closer to one another in this great project of bringing up these souls in the fear of God. Let them be a buffer to your relationship and a bond so that when they're gone, you miss them. But on the other hand, you say, wow, it's just us. And it's good because we've had a relationship that we've cultivated all along. Now we can even deepen that relationship. May our marriages be places where we reflect the goodness and wisdom of God, both of which are despised by the world. May God help us to repent of our sins within marriage and show the fruit of repentance so that in this crooked and perverse generation, we might shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, to use Paul's words from Philippians. And then to you who are unmarried, I call you once again to turn a deaf ear to our wicked society and to listen to your prophet, Jesus Christ. Marriage is for keeps. None of the fickle, selfish reasons which lead people to the divorce court will wash with him. And so you, my single young man or young woman, you need to prepare for a marriage that will last a lifetime. And how will you do that? By cultivating your walk with God so that you will attract a godly person of the opposite sex to yourself. 
and by cultivating your walk with God so that you will be attracted to a godly person of the opposite sex. And may you follow closely the counsel of godly parents and others in entering into a relationship with someone of the opposite sex, continuing in that relationship, and deciding to consummate that relationship in marriage. And in that regard, I think we have two wonderful examples among us here. I'm glad that Charity and Caleb are visiting with us, and I would commend Charity's wonderful example in seeking counsel from her parents, from her pastor, and marrying well in the Lord. And our sister Jessie, who five days from now, right here, will be pronounced a wife and to her husband, right? And we want to commend her because Jessie, too, not having a father who's close at hand, was one who has sought the counsel of her brothers and sisters, sought the counsel of, of her pastor, and took that counsel, and we believe is marrying well in the Lord because they took that counsel. They didn't lean on their own understanding. And as a result, they have or will have, we believe, happy marriages that glorify Christ and are satisfying to them. And then one final word. If anybody here is not an unbeliever, you're not a heaven-bound, born-again believer in Jesus, one of the ways you can tell that you're not a believer is when you find something in the Word of God that, that is clear, but you don't like it. Now, it's possible that I can misinterpret the Word of God. That's always possible, and I'm always open to correction. But if I have understood the Word of God correctly and taught it correctly, and you're fidgeting in your seat and saying, I don't like that. I don't like what Jesus is saying. That may often be an indication that your heart is in rebellion against God. See, we agree with God when he agrees with us. I, I know unbelievers who are glad to agree with God when God agrees with them. But when God says something they don't like, all of a sudden the hackles are raised and they don't like it. It's one of the indications that your heart has not yet bent to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't like what he says in his word and I'm not going to follow it. That's an indication that you're part of this humanity that is in rebellion against God. We've turned everyone to our own way and you need to turn back to God and be reconciled to him. And there's only one way and that is through Jesus Christ. Only Jesus lived the perfect life we could not live. Only Jesus died to pay for the sins we, it would have taken hell for us to pay for, and we never would have paid off the debt. Jesus died to pay the debt. You need to ask God for a new heart, a heart of flesh rather than a cold, stony heart. You need to ask Jesus to save you, to be your Savior, be your Lord, and he will make things new. Well, let's pray and then sing. Our Father, insofar as I have understood your word correctly and taught it correctly, seal it to our hearts in all of its dimensions and help us to live in light of it. We ask in Jesus' name.